Are you ready, ladies? Stand tall. Straighten those crowns and show them what you're made of. You're listening to the Farm Queen Podcast. So welcome again for another queen. We are so excited for this one. She has actually made the short list of nominations more than once. And so we've kind of been sitting here in the wings waiting for a chance to talk to her. And we are very excited that today is that day. So she comes from another, I'm going to call it community garden sort of format. Um, and so it's very cool that we've had this train of you know, community garden women showing us just what it means to not just raise food for your family, but to take care of the people outside of your family, kind of people around you as well. And this farm that she's got going is a very, very cool concept. So I'm going to let her share the highlights of it. Jesse, welcome. We are Thanks. super excited to have you this week. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about you and your farm? you guys do there, how long it's been around, all that sort of good stuff. Sure. And I'm just really honored to be part of the the farm queen community. (laughs) Um, It's it's really great. And I'm, yeah, I'm excited uh, to chat with you. Um, Yeah. So our farm is in Syracuse, New York. um, And as far as urban farms go, we're kind of, we're pretty big, one of the biggest in the country because we're nearly six acres. Um, And, but we're a nonprofit. Um, which is probably the only way you can pull that off in Syracuse. Um, so because we're part of a faith-based organization, um, our goal is really about food access and getting food to people in the community where we have poor access, mostly because we have a lot of what a lot of people call food deserts, um, where we don't have grocery stores. We have a lot of corner stores, but we don't have a lot of nutritious food, definitely no fresh produce. Um, so we grow right in the middle of the city and one of the lowest income communities, um, not just in the city, but in the country. Um, and then we put our farm stands not at the other farmers markets where you can go and find lots of farms. Uh, we go directly into the neighborhoods um, and bring our produce to the people. So we have our farm operations where we're growing um, lots of different vegetables and we have an apprenticeship program. Uh, so we have a training, uh, paid training for folks who want to learn to farm and garden. Um, but we're also just a, a space for a handful of other community connections and activities. So just because we're right there in the middle of everything, um, that means we're accessible to people in lots of ways. That is very cool. I'm really impressed to hear that you're one of the largest in the country. You said that was one of the largest urban farms. You said it was six. Just under six acres. Yeah. Just under six acres. Okay. So is there an upper limit to consider it an urban farm? Because that is obviously a very impressive title to be one of the largest, but what defines, uh, does, does urban farm get defined by size or is it just location? Like, could you have a 10 acre urban farm? Oh, you totally can. And there's some places that do, um, and Detroit has some, but there's not many that have this amount of contiguous property. So, Mm. you know, there's a lot of urban farms where they'll have like, you know, 20 quarter acre lots and together they call themselves an urban farm, right? Um, Where we're 
all right, together in one all... space. Yeah. And so just in urban areas, it's very rare to have that much open space that right. you have good enough soil and sunlight that you can dedicate to farming. So I'm curious then, how did, you said you're part of a faith-based organization, right? And yeah. so how did that come about um, as far as like, you know, obviously that's exactly the kind of group that wants to take care of their community and wants to give to those in need. And, you know, it's perfectly aligned with the group, right? It makes sense. But why an urban farm specifically? Because like a lot of, uh, you know, faith groups, churches, et cetera, they might do food drives with their communities. They might, um, you know, just do, I don't want to call it like a stipend, but they'll just do like a monetary gift for these families to help them out. And you guys have said, you know what, instead of asking the community to give food, buy food, set up food pantries or those little like food library things, you guys said, let's just grow it ourselves. So how did that, how did that idea start? Um, so there was a, a philanthropist um, who was really intrigued by the idea of urban farms and having a lot of inspiration from Curtis Stone and thinking about how you can do, you know, high volume productivity in urban areas and get a lot of money out of it. And his thought was like, great, this would be a way to fund jobs and things like this. Um, and so he had actually come to me when I was working still at Cornell Cooperative Extension. And we had an urban agriculture program that I was overseeing at the time. So I was just kind of helping him think about what it takes to do an urban farm. And in the meantime, he ended up kind of partnering and getting on the same page with the Brady Faith Center. Um, and so we kind of formed this, <laughs> this, you know, group of people trying to figure out what it would take to one have a significant sized farm operation in the city um, and what type of operation is possible. And so, you know, his original inspiration had really been about this job creation and, you know, high profit margins. Um, but much of that model is based on selling really expensive produce, <laughs> which is not what the city of Syracuse can afford. So if we were to like sell our product to New York City, maybe that model would work. But because the project ended up being, you know, picked up by this faith-based organization, you know, our goal is to serve the people of the community. Like we want them to be healthy, healthy here in our immediate community. Um, and so that's kind of how things got spun a little bit and has really formed um, how we developed the farm and how we operate and the programs around it. Um, and so as far as the Brady Faith Center, why this was interesting to them, because you're right, a lot of faith-based organizations are just about giving food. Um, but we have a city with a lot of vacancy. Um, a lot of the properties that are occupied are blighted. You know, poverty shows up in a lot of different ways. And it's a very visceral thing in the city of Syracuse. You can't drive down the street without seeing the impact of poverty. Um, and so it was really important to use something like food production is not just about the food. It's really, you know, my boss talks about it as energy. You know, he, he was like, this, this is a way of energizing people. This is a way of energizing our entire community um, and really changing how people are interacting with each other and with our immediate neighborhood. Um, so this really was not just about the production of food, but it was really about 
nourishing people's, you know, souls and spirits in a lot of ways um, and providing other ways that we could relate to each other that were really healthy. You know, I'm familiar with what you're saying for Syracuse. My husband's from that area. So I've seen, I've seen the parts of the city where you drive through and you think you can't help but think that it's a very downtrodden kind of area. Um, and so you had made the statement of if you were selling to like New York City, that's obviously a higher income area and people can afford this high-end produce and everything, but the income level in the Syracuse area is not going to support that kind of pricing structure. So how has that affected what you guys do or what you guys can do, given that you have to be probably a lot more um, you know, price point minded than the average farm? Yeah, it's it's altered our business model quite. I mean, I tell people who come to the farm and they're like, "Oh, this is so great!" And like, "No, this is the worst business model ever." Like growing organically um, to on small acreage, a diversified vegetable farm to to an impoverished community is not is not a sustainable business model. Um, so for us to make that work. You know, we have a lot of grant funding, um, but that means that we also have to emphasize programming. Um, so you don't usually get grants just to like grow food and sell it for the sake of growing food. Um, and so for us, things like our apprenticeship program, where we are getting, you know, really in-depth training for 12 people a year. So they're they're really like all the science of farming, what you know, plant production, food production. Um on an organic scale, on our scale, but also introducing them to other farms um, and other farming methods. Um, but we also invite the community to be part of our farm and that we're going into the community for food distribution so that we're, we're really trying to tackle other health initiatives and outcomes through what we do. Um, so that enables us to get other income, but that doesn't mean like we can't just grow food. We can't just grow and sell. We really have to be about people. We really have to be about programming um, and building community and using our farm to meet those health outcomes for the community. Um, so that that changes our staffing structure. That changes the physical identity of the farm. And right now we have a, another grant because we don't have space to, to accommodate people. Like we have all these teachers who want to bring their kids to the farm. And I want to say yes. Um, but we don't have a location, you know, in the parts of the year where they want kids outside, which is usually February. I don't have a place to accommodate a 25, you know, group of kids um, on our farm. Um, so for us to even do that programming, we need to build structures to support those people. Um, and we have to have staff that can do the programming to support. So it's not just about, you know, farm workers in a traditional sense. It's really the people who can do the outreach and education for the community, too. Yeah, it sounds like it has to kind of be an interesting mix of obviously your first priority is growing the food and getting it into the hands of those who need it. But because of the way that you're a nonprofit and your grants and such are structured, you have to also focus on almost making it like a learning experience for the community as well. You know, like you said, you have to have the programs in there because you're not going to get a grant for just growing a few more extra rows of food. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, it does. Yes. So it's, it's, a and functioning as a nonprofit. So for me as a farmer, that's, I end up doing a lot more administration than maybe other farms might have to do. I mean, not that farms don't have to do a lot of business management, but it ends up this extra layer of, um, programmatic development and grant management on top of managing the farm. Um, 
And so another thing that we've changed, you know, you're small and we obviously can't, you know, fulfill the food needs of the community. And we're not your, I mean, we grow year round, but you can only eat so much spinach and kale, you know, <laughs> so our community doesn't need like all of that, but they still need food. Um, they still need a variety of food. <laughs> so, you know, we try to be humble. Um, and I lean on our other partner farms in the region. So we partner with a few other farms throughout the year and especially in the winter. Um, so what we can't grow, we resell at our farm stands. So I'm not going to waste my space on growing sweet corn and strawberries because our space is too precious and it's too hard organically for us to do that. But I can get that product from other farms. And so it's a way for us to help reinforce and you know support our other local farms to do what they do, but also to provide the variety of product into the community that they really want and need that we can't fulfill ourselves. Um, and sometimes that means we're buying wholesale in the winter just to like round out the nutritional you know, spectrum for families that we're trying to reach. So like we work with a school that has primarily refugee families. Um, so twice a month, we deliver food boxes to produce boxes to them and deliver fruit. So I'm obviously not getting in December locally grown fruit other than apples. Right. <laughs> There's not much I can give and they get tired of apples. So I'm going to get them citrus fruit. Um, so we really try to leverage our ability to get into the community in ways that other farms or other nonprofits can't do it. So we fit into all of those squishy zones. <laughs> like where this this weird place that others can't do it, we can kind of slide in and fill some of those gaps. Yeah, that nonprofit status I'm sure helps with the wholesale pricing and yeah, though I'll say like we don't get special pricing for being a nonprofit. We do get wholesale prices for what we do, but we really also try right. to honor our partner farms and neighborhood farms. Like we don't we don't want to have right. them lose income because they're working with us. But um right. But it does help right. us to do the distribution in a different way and and to mm -hmm. get product affordably to people that other farms might not be able to do it and still meet their own financial goals. So one of the things that I did want to ask about, and I'm not sure how much you can speak to it. Um, so obviously I don't know how involved you were with it, but we were reading on your website about what sounds like a pretty intensive undertaking to, I'm going to in short, call it backfill the soil. So it sounds like this was not exactly oh. growing <laughs> land and you guys have done incredibly, incredibly hard work to, you know, do the soil testing and getting all of the heavy metal contaminated soil out of the way, backfilling in clean soil so that you can do this. So um, you guys have done it on just such a massive scale that I think that's something different to look at. And we're still doing it, but much of that hard, that whole backfill part was done before we got on. We, we were present. Um, so it was just one of those things when I was still consulting for cooperative extension on this project. I was like, this is a really bad idea, guys. Like I, you're not going to find this much acreage. This, this is not going to work. It's going to be really expensive because you can really only do raised beds and the other urban farm projects I consulted on and community gardens, it's always been raised beds. And, and I was the person at Cornell at our extension office that got all the soil test results, you know? Um, so I knew what the soil quality was like in the city. Um, so it was really interesting when we did the soil tests and I was helping to su supervise the soil testing process at the farm, we got the results back and 
it was the cleanest soil I had ever seen. <laughs> I was really oh, confused. Wow. Um, so I had to dig into the DEC files and their remediation files. The property, um, you know, when it, it was first was settled was a farm in the 1800s and then became a series of apartment buildings starting in the 1950s. Um, so there was three different iterations of apartment buildings. And when the final one came down in 2002, um, they had to remove much of the soil. So they had, but it wasn't, um, very little of it was lead contamination. It was primarily asbestos contamination mm -hmm. and they had petroleum tanks. So the hot spots on the farm that had contamination, the DEC had already removed it. So we do have remnant concrete and foundation. We have, um, baby forks and spoons and <laughs> medicine bottles and like all these other like random urban remnants. Um, but the contaminated soil had been removed. So they, but they didn't backfill with, they backfilled with uncontaminated soil, but they didn't backfill with agricultural soil. Um, right. So what we have is a few pockets where it's like, <gasps> Oh my God. And it sucks because it's like, you know, you hit native soil because it's this massive river rock and it like throws our walk behind tractor up in the air and it makes you want to bite your tongue and it's like really <laughs> hard to control the tractor. Um, but, but it's like, Oh my God, this is like native soil. Cause you have these beautiful round river rocks and it's not foundation. Um, but we don't have many spots like that on the farm. Um, so we did extensive soil testing is the short answer. Um, to understand what was going on. And we have this really wide range of soil nutrition on the site. So because of the presence of concrete, either from the foundation or because there was so we're surrounded by sidewalk and there were sidewalks all through the property connecting the buildings, we have really high pH because all of that concrete is made of calcium. And so, um, yeah, we have really basic soil. And um, so we get these funky spots where you can look across our farm and you'll have a row like split a field in half and you can see exactly where the foundation is because the plants that they start yellowing or they get chloritic or there's other little things happening or they're not getting water and you can see it in the plants exactly what's happening subsurface um so what we do um we have built up a lot of organic matter um so we started small with only one acre less than an acre um, and in that time, while we were starting small, we were rehabilitate, rehabilitating the soil on the rest of the property. So we were adding compost, we were adding cover crops, um, and also adding wood chip. So our, our big fun, cheap, well, it's labor intensive, but cheap material is adding wood chips. So we, uh, mulch our paths for weed control. Uh, we put down cardboard and we get the local arborists dump their wood chips at our site. And so we pave, pave um, our, our paths with wood chips. Um, and then we found that after two years, they decompose enough that we can flip that matter back into our beds. So um, it's, it's been really successful and where we have, we have done that. It, the crops the next year are just gorgeous. Um, and we have really great soil volume, rooting volume, um, so we're just constantly between the compost we're adding that we get from our local resource recovery agency, um, and the wood chips, there's, um, 
yeah, we're, we're pretty much just like slowly building up like a, a very long process of building a raised bed, I guess you could say, <laughs> but just through composting with it. Right, a raised bed with no actual borders no, and raised. limits on it. It's a, right. what did you say, five, five something acre? Raised bed, right, 5.8 <laughs> acres. We have about only four and a half of that that we can cultivate, but still, yeah, four and a half acre raised bed, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So I I hope people hear that and they really start to wrap their head around. You said like you did an acre at first of improving this, like really intensive improving yes. the soil, and I want people to really think about how much soil that actually is in an acre to try and improve it, or to I mean, if you brought in truckloads of soil, that's that's a few truckloads yeah. and then some. So, oh yes, yes, the yes. the scale of of what these folks are doing here at at this Brady Farm to get the soil to where it needs to be to truly grow, not just grow crops but grow good crops. That's that's an undertaking and a half right there. Yeah, and it, it's a process. It's not something, and that's you know why I was very skeptical about you know this farm was that. I, I knew just how laborious and expensive it would be to get that much soil and high quality soil on the site. So, um, and, and to have enough soil that didn't have contamination on it. So we're really lucky that this particular space exists and we, it's so rare because it's full open sun. We do not have tall buildings around us. We have a Creek on one side, we have woodland on the other side. We like, it's, we couldn't <laughs> ask for a better location and that it happens to be nearly six acres is really a miracle. Um, but for folks, you know, who want to do this, it, it's not to say that you can't, but you have to know that it takes a long time. So we did like one acre and then two acres and then three acres. And now we've kind of filled out it, all the spots that we can, but we're still putting beds fallow. We're still leaving significant chunks of fields fallow or a cover crop for the year because we have to keep building the soil nutrition. It might be good for like a year after you get the compost down, but uh, then you burn out all your nutrients and we have to just keep rebuilding it. So we have to keep adding cover crops. We have to keep adding more organic matter. Um, so, it, so it is a process, a very long steady process. So this is our eighth year and, you know, we've got like a quarter acre that I feel really good about. Literally, like that's it. After eight years, I got a quarter acre. I'm like, that field is where it needs to be. <laughs> and so, and I know it's going to take another five years to get the rest of our fields in that space. So, um, and I don't want to discourage people, but it's so important to be realistic, just have realistic expectations. So you don't have these like great big dreams about what you can do in urban farming and think it can just happen right away because it is a slog. Yeah, it sounds like it's not just a slow process, but it's a constantly renewing process too that, like you said, it's not like you can just put compost on once and call it good forever. I mean, in a backyard garden, you can probably get away with that because you're not growing as much, but when you're doing such a huge operation, you have to constantly be thinking about soil quality and soil nutrients and all of that. So you have a very interesting um kind of jump into this project because obviously you kind of sound like you started as more consulting on it and now you're obviously deep into it. So would you like to tell us a little bit about kind of how you got involved in this farm? 
Yeah. So it started with, you know, this philanthropist daydreaming about how to do it and thinking about locations in the city. And so that, you know, part of my job at the Brady Faith Center. Um, and I was at a moment, I really love cooperative extension and I love the the what it's supposed to do. And hopefully people listening know what cooperative extension is, but, you know, short story, like take all this great research and make it applicable to the, you know, people, the average person who can't go to college, right? And like, how do you improve their life? How do you make things more affordable, specifically for farmers, right? What's the greatest technology, a new tractor or whatever it needs to be so they can do a better job. Um, and I really appreciated that, but, you know, it's a bureaucratic system and I was becoming very immersed in the community and working with a lot of community gardeners and getting very frustrated with just having knowledge, but not being empowered to do something about it. So extension is limited because you're really just supposed to like educate people. <laughs> you're, you're supposed to like help them know how to do them something, but you can't be the doer. You can't be the one to make it happen. Right. Um, and so that was frustrating. And I was just feeling a moment of really personally in my life, in my own physical space, um, but also as a community member, just anxious to make these things happen. Um, so at the, um, I was organizing a food justice symposium um, that last year that I was at Extension and the Brady Faith Center was one of the stakeholders we had brought in to help organize and inform the symposium. Um, and at that point they had, um, you know, really signed on with this philanthropist and we're working with the city to find a location. So they found their location. It was like, wow. And by the way, this is totally, totally serendipitous. It happens to be three blocks away from my house. So I already oh, lived wow. here. <laughs> it's also three blocks from my house. Um, and so I'm kind of in this corridor along Onondaga Creek where much of the area used to be farmland, obviously. Um, you know, the church next door to my house has this old farm uh, house still present. And you see just the feed store is across the creek and down the way a bit from us. And that had been around for a long time. Um, and I was just able to look out of my backyard and think, I just want a homestead. I just want to figure out how to do all this here myself. Um, I guess this is going to need to be my retirement plan. <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I can't jump ship and just start homesteading right now. All right. So Anyways, they found this property and we were organizing this symposium and it's like, that's great, guys. What's your next step? You need to hire a farm manager, find somebody. And they're like, yeah, well, we kind of thought you would do that. <laughs> <laughs> so he offered me the job almost on the spot. Um, and he's like, I just can't afford that. You know, um, I've got this cushy job at Extension. When I just thought about it, I just I it wasn't really an option. I couldn't not do it. I couldn't not start making this be my life. I was just too entrenched in it. And it was too important to me personally, just professionally, I really wanted it to happen. But um, just personally, for my own spirit, and knowing what our community needed, I, I couldn't not do it. So that's how I kind of came on board and um, started it from the, you know, with zoning, agriculture is not permitted in the city of Syracuse. So we had to go and get a zoning use variance. We um, 
had to jump through a lot of hoops just to legally farm in the city. And that was a nearly two year process. We might have installed water and farmed anyway. <laughs> Thankfully, the city, the city didn't tell us not to. They were going to hold their breath and hope that the zoning process worked on our and our benefit and it did so we plugged forward anyhow That's how I got involved and I've been it ever since a little bit of an outlaw I love it <laughs> just a tiny bit just enough but it matters <laughs> yeah um yeah, right and I think that's that's you're making me think again that that's a whole separate conversation of you know like you said the city doesn't allow agriculture I can kind of understand you know not having chickens and cows on average size uh city lots perhaps but you know that idea of like you guys are growing crops you know you're not raising noisy livestock you're not you know working with like slurries cleaning out after cows or anything and it's right. it's astounding how many hoops you have to go through to say we just want to grow some fresh vegetables for our community right. and that's just anybody listening in an urban area, I hope they kind of take note of that and they they kind of make sure that they start maybe paying a little more attention, maybe push a little bit and make it so that your community does start to look at these things and change the codes and allow for agriculture. Because just like you said, food deserts, and that's a real thing. And people need to be able to access this food. You know, it's it's unreasonable to be able to not to be able to, it's unreasonable to, to basically make it so that people don't have the ability to access this fresh food. So. Yeah. And I guess a bright spot to that process. Um, we are fortunate that we have city planners um, and some of the city administration that is very supportive and like in their personal hearts, they wanted this to happen, but there wasn't really a legal path forward for them without jumping through these hoops. But the city is going through a rezoning process. So our zoning codes are 50 years old and the pain and effort that we all had to go through together on the city's end and, and our end to make this happen, um, they made sure to include me in the process. So as, as kind of a voice to make sure that as they move forward, they are going to make agriculture a permitted use um, and, they're, and they're including it in their zoning now. Um, and community gardens, so food production and distribution. Um, so it was it was an important moment, but you have to like have that. Somebody has to have the nerve to just be like, you know what, we have to do this different. Somebody has to step forward. And, you know, it sucked. It was really hard and very stressful process. But the end result is that, you know, now that is firmly, that's going to be firmly embedded into the zoning in the city of Syracuse, that we have specific language that meets their economic development needs it meets the needs of residential neighborhoods but still allows for food production um so i think you're totally right roxanne like people have to like think about it look at it and somebody has to speak up and start pushing push it a little bit because there there are opportunities um to change things sometimes it's slow um but somebody has to start speaking up and doing it i might be a little subversive sometimes <laughs> <laughs> no well said well said somebody has there's always there's always a catalyst there's always somebody who starts the ball rolling it could be you whoever's listening so take a leg out of jesse's book a page out of jesse's book and go be the i don't know be the tiny little snowflake that starts the avalanche you know that's so, right given that you're 
I mean, involved some in some pretty impressive things as far as, you know, what your background is and this project you're working on, um, you know, now with this, with this whole farm, this huge thing you're doing. I don't think it, it has any question in anybody's mind why you are very deserving of this crown. So I would love to know, as we ask everyone, how did it feel that you got this crown and you're being honored as the queen this week? <laughs> it was really, really great. <laughs> it totally, it made my month. Um, because, yeah, um, this has been a really hard slog just personally because, you know, farm work is really hard and it's physically hard. And now I've hit an age, I've hit an age and we all are going to hit this age. Um, and when you do farm work, you beat up your body. Um, and so I herniated my disc this fall Oh no! and, you know, just two weeks before my doctor had said, you know, you really need to stop doing physical labor. Um, and that was just that punch in the gut. So I cried for two days. And because, um, you know, now it's like there's this identity crisis. Like I've always been able to like this farm was so hard to start. It was like me, a part time person and another part time person. But I had a young family at the time. I mean, they're still young, but um, they were very little. And I, I couldn't just do it part time. This was definitely a full time job to make this happen. And so it was just the blood, sweat and tears. But I always knew that I could rely on myself to make it happen. I always had myself to turn like whatever hard thing to make this thing possible. I could always rely on myself. Um and and so I've always been the default, like something hard has to happen or like you have to climb on a ladder in a wonky way or use a tool or you put the tractor in a awkward position and it just takes grit. I always could bring grit. <laughs> my thing. And um, so that was really hard for me to, you know, have my doctor tell me I need to start phasing out this physical aspect of my job. I'm like, but I'm a farmer. <laughs> this is what I do. And this is my identity and this is my heart. Um, so I really had to think you know, hard about like how I continue farming and, and, you know, making all of this magical stuff happen that happens at our farm without being the one to physically do it myself. So getting the farm queen nomination was just like, you know, made me very teary um, because I felt it was a recognition of all, you know, it's just been so, it's been a journey and it's been so worthwhile, but it's been so hard, um, but it still needs to happen. So even if it's not me, it's, it's so important that this is happening. Um, and so it, it was really nice to get the recognition of all that it took up to this point, <laughs> at this point where I have to figure out how to keep farming in a different way. Um, so it was a good morale boost for me, but struck at a really, you know, poignant time in my life. Uh, I think you put that perfectly for you in particular of it has been a journey and you have by the sound of it put blood, sweat, tears, and then some into this, into this whole path that you followed. And yeah, it's, it's exactly women like you that need to be put in this spotlight and to share your story and I don't think there's anybody listening that's not going to hear your passion for what you've done all this time. 
And I think more people need to be aware of that for sure. Along those lines, um, we've had a few other queens mention the same kind of thing of like, you know, we're women, we get emotional. And whether that's because of what's going on in your farm or in your personal life or whatever, and how it affects the farm, um, it, it does paint the picture that women approach farming a little bit differently than men do. Mm-hmm. What is it that you've noticed that makes women in agriculture a little bit different than men in agriculture, whether it's just, you know, Hey, I've noticed this personality trait about women in agriculture. Maybe it's a misconception of what people presume about women in agriculture that may not be correct. Kind of along those lines. I don't, I don't know what it is. I can just tell you a dynamic that we've experienced at the farm. Um, one, it's great that we have a faith-based organization that uh, is really focused on the whole person. And um, what that has meant for us and our farm is that as I started off kind of coming from, you know, this very kind of rigid system of like how you treat employees, expectations for performance, but I was hiring people from the community, hiring people who have gone through a lot of trauma, hiring people who have complicated lives because poverty is very expensive and very hard to navigate. Um, and it didn't work. You can't hire folks coming from this background and have the same types of expectations. But that's a very patriarchal way of thinking about employment and supervision um, when things are you know, very strongly based on like consequence instead of like somebody's coming to you with an issue with childcare and you're like, well, this is your job. You got to figure that out. And to me, this is kind of like patriarchal way of supervising and and conducting business because the patriarchy didn't have to care about childcare. They didn't have to care about just how hard and important it was to get your kid because you had your woman at home doing it for you or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think what has been unique for us and we've been able to just slowly develop is this like letting go, even as women, we have to let go of that that has been programmed into us as supervisors and leaders. And it's like, there's a different way of operating here. And so how we approach employment and farming together is not like, here's an expectation that you failed. It's like, okay, here's a challenge that came up so let's talk about what made that challenge and what's the root of it and how do we work together to resolve it? And as an employer, how can I support you to get past that and that we can grow together? And um, so I'm helping them, but I'm also learning myself about what my employees need so that they can be more successful. Um, And so it's just, it does feel a little magical sometimes because that entirely changes the culture that you have working together. Um, where you can be vulnerable. It's okay to make mistakes. Um, people are really focused on, they have ownership over the farm and what's being done because they actually care because they know that somebody cares about them. They, you know, and that, I'm not going to say that it's a, I, I can't say that it's because there's this like women in farming thing. It might also be true that many of our employees were female born <laughs> so, and or identify as female now. And 
that's <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> I somehow attract very few um, men or male born farm staff. So, um, and not that they aren't also successful and great. And it's, it is amazing to have the range of people. Um, but that's a cultural observation. I've noticed we just are able to maintain a culture of understanding and empathy that then turns around at people being more dedicated and incredibly hard workers um, because they care and they know they're being cared about. You know, I think every female farmer also is used to the dynamic of mansplaining. And that's always just mm -hmm. still surprises me. <laughs> when you get groups of volunteers, they're like, I'll drive your tractor for you. I'm like, I got it. Turns out I, I know how to drive my tractor. Thanks very much. Yep. But we still are facing a lot of this expectation. Even women, it's so crazy, though. Um, in the community, especially older women who were like, what are you doing? That's a man's job. I'm like, yeah, man can't do it like I can, you know, but just still this pushback of, you know, women shouldn't be doing hard work or physical work. Um, that's always shocking to me. And so I, for what it's worth, I appreciate the presence of so many female farmers on our farm being so visible to the community breaking that barrier of expectation of what we should and could be doing, um, what we're capable of, because it's it's hard work, but largely female. If you know what you're saying about like the patriarchy and they didn't have to think about the kids at home because there was someone at home to take care of raising the kids and, you know, that was just off of their list of to-dos. Would it be fair to say that there's a difference of men in farming in particular, since that's our topic of discussion, are perhaps a little more focused on, you know, here's the job, here's the task that needs doing, get it done. Whereas women in agriculture are maybe a little more focused on here's the task and here's what needs to get done, but I don't want to get it done at the compromise of mental health, physical health, emotional well-being of the people around me helping with this task or somehow involved and tied to the task. Would you say that it's fair to say that women essentially look at kind of the people around the task as well as the task? I think it's too broad to generalize in that way. Um, I definitely have female staff who really don't want to deal with people's personal stuff um, <laughs> and want to just get the job done. You know, it's like, we need to be efficient. We got to get stuff done. So, you know, stop talking, <laughs> move on. You know, um, I think some of the difference and a lot of it is also generational um, is that, you know, we're actively trying to shed the impact of patriarchy, like generationally and the younger they get, the more that's possible. Right. Um, but I'm in my mid forties. And so that's still very much, I have to push up against that myself personally and see where it's kind of rearing its head. Um, so I think our, the younger generations that they're less inclined to think that way. And, you know, my husband has taken care of our kids a lot. You know, I guess I am definitely a good mom. I am there for my kids, but I'm able to do it because I have a husband who's really supportive of it. Right. And so that's a generational change and a generational shift is that on the back end, it's not just like expectations of what women can do, but 
that what's the family dynamic for them? Do they have support for the men in their lives to make this be possible? Um, and so I think for me, it's some of this is generational. Some of it is like the, the type of environment that people are coming up through in their work. And if they're still kind of coming in through a very patriarchal system, we end up clinging to those ways of thinking. The difference I think I'd make is that I think women are more open to it. When I was, when I push the brakes a bit, like, I think you're being harsh and this is our mission. And this is how we really want to think about the whole person. Let's step back and see how we can support them. They'll be like, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> it's just easier to, to, to reframe and to switch gears and um, to be receptive to thinking about the whole person. I think that that might come more intuitively to women um, than it is for a lot of male farmers. But a lot of it, I think, is generational, too. That's fair. Yeah. And I, I think that we are seeing that difference as, you know, obviously women in ag are the fastest growing sector as far as new farmers. Um, and yet we still see in, you know, advertisements and marketing, it is still most commonly the middle-aged or older guy in the plaid shirt by the tractor. And that's, you know, quote unquote farmer. So yeah, right. it's, it's, it's very it's honestly, it's good to hear you say that you're seeing kind of as the generations change that you're seeing some of this kind of the stereotypes are kind of breaking away in terms of whether it's the farming, whether it's the family at home and everything. And I think that that really opens it up to allow more women to be in ag and do exactly what you did that you're like, I'm a farmer. This is my identity. And there's there's not what I would call the generational, almost a shame of it, of like, why are you doing a man's job? Why are you right. doing this hard labor? You should be in the kitchen and cooking and raising the babies and kissing mm -hmm. boo-boos. And it's like, yeah, I'll kiss my own boo-boo that I just got from this you know, piece <laughs> of equipment or whatever, and I'll carry on with my day. So yes. yeah, very, very good to hear you kind of describe that you're, you know, you're, you're in it, you're on the ground, you know, the front lines, as they say, and you are starting to see that difference. So that's a very encouraging thing to hear. So given that you have this very challenging um, set of people that you are farming to help, given that it's a nonprofit, which comes with a whole different set of, you know, rules versus I'm just going to grow a little bit and sell my extra kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of how you operate and everything. Um, and especially the thing that I think is really just outstanding is that instead of, like you said, instead of doing the traditional farmer's markets, you're going right into the neighborhoods where the food is needed. And you're saying, Hey, we're not going to do these markets that you have to go to. And there's all these people to sort through and everything. Just here's us, here's some food. We're bringing it to you. Um, I gotta be honest. That sounds like a very challenging load to balance to not just, you know, be running the farm and doing the work, to figure out, um, you know, where you need to go with the food, to coordinate when it happens, to figure out when the right day or the right time of day is to get to the right people. Mm -hmm. You mentioned working with the with the schools with a lot of refugee families, making sure that they're getting food, um, yeah. and kind of navigating across all of that sounds like it is just a huge undertaking. I can see that your farm, you know, you've got a team, so we know it's not. Thank God it's not just on you because I don't know anybody that could bear quite that much all by themselves. Um, but in terms of, in terms of the difficulty of, you know, day in and day out, it sounds like there is, there's not a whole lot of room for, uh, denying that this is one heck of a tough job that, that you and your team are doing. So 
how do you motivate yourself to keep going? Mm. I don't really feel like there's a choice. Um, and I think I'll just a quick touch on, you know, this question of like where we go it's been hard to figure those things out and we're still working it out. But some of the beauty of an urban farm is, especially in a place like Syracuse, that um, this is such a new novel thing. Like you don't know what you ought to have in your life until you see it. And then it's there and you're like, Oh, I want more of that. And, you know, other people in the community are like, how do I get to Brady farm? What can I do there? How can I learn from that? And all of a sudden you become a community resource and you just have a lot of people coming to you and expressing a need and telling you what they want. Like I hear a lot about what people want and need, which can sometimes be annoying, but it's also really helpful. So we have so many community partnerships. Um, so a lot of my time is spent talking to people. A lot of my time is spent in community with community meetings and community leaders or just the neighbors, honestly, just a lot of the neighbors telling me and, you know, walking with me and whatever it is. Um, and so that helps to inform what we're growing, where we're selling it, how the times, the dates, a lot of that detail kind of comes out from just being with people. But then that's also the thing that like keeps me motivated because people want it. <laughs> like we're just, we're here and we're just doing our thing, but people really value the work that we do and and value the farm being present in the community um and it inspires people and it's just it does become a catalyst for other other organizations to start doing a thing and like our tiny little bit of contribution to a grant can really help a whole another organization like make something bigger and better happen um or start a partnership that's this really novel way of doing a thing to get more food to people. So every time that little like little catalyst happens in this little community partnership, I and then the neighbor kids, <laughs> they just like they own the farm, you know, so they just show up randomly and uh, on an almost daily basis and will sometimes help us sometimes just stand and chat because they just want our companionship. Um, but it's always a reminder that just how important the farm is and the community. And I get to be around only really good people, like between our farmers and the neighbors and our community partners. I'm just, I get to work with really amazing people like all the time. And so it's unquestionable. Like how could I do something else when this is like meaningful work, but I'm around people who are really loving and vision oriented and want the best for their community. So, you know, it, they just, people just, their energy keeps pushing me on. Just got to keep going. And then I get cool. nominated farm queen and like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing how you worded that, that I'm going to summarize it as your doesn't sound like you really need to lean on your community, but that's that's so amazing to hear that you essentially have the community to lean on if you ever needed that boost of like having a rough day. How do I do this? It's like mm -hmm. it sounds like a neighbor kid might just show up and then you go, yep, that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> and, you know, you see the smiles on people's faces, maybe as you're as you're working with them for getting the produce that they need. And it's like, yep, that's why I'm doing that. And that's it paints a very beautiful picture of what you guys are doing that I can like, I'm getting the sense from you of like the emotion behind it of yeah, like how much that means to you to just see 
see firsthand the effect on the community. It is. Cool. It's so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely keeps me going. So what is the best place for folks to follow you and this Brady farm? And hopefully if they're local to Syracuse to maybe volunteer or can they donate? Um, since you're a nonprofit, can they donate to your to your effort monetarily? Tell us about that. Oh, sure. We love donations. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a little donate button on our website. So bradyfarm.org is our website. Um, and .org, not .com. That turns out to be a horse farm, not us. Um, oh. And then I know. So I get a lot of questions about horses and goats from the other Brady farm in the world. Um, so we're .org. But most of our updates, um, you know, I am the oldest staff person. So I've recruited people who are trying to convince me to do Twitter but we don't have a Twitter. <laughs> so Facebook is the best way to find us. And we do a little bit on Instagram, um, but it's our Facebook and Instagram is Brady Faith Farm because Brady Farm was taken by that other farm. Um, right. So we're Brady Faith Farm on Facebook and Instagram. And that's probably the best way to get updates. And um, we're getting pretty good, but we also have a mailing list. So if you send us a note, um, we'll add you to our newsletter. And we try to do a monthly or bi-monthly uh, newsletter. Like all farms in the heat of the season, we're all, not always great about communication. <laughs> Wintertime yeah. is a really good time to hear from us. Yeah, we all just get too distracted by seeds and seedlings <laughs> and, oh, look, the sun is shining and I'm not freezing today. And yeah. Yeah. And then the sun hits and everybody just forgets about everything but going outside, especially in upstate New York. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All right. So the last thing that I would love for you to close us with is what advice or encouragement, inspiration, whatever it might be, do you have, whether it's for future farm queens or whether it's for um, people who are also looking to start making changes like what you guys are doing in their community, pushing for urban gardens, starting an urban or community garden, anything like that. What would you tell them to kind of give them that little push and nudge them along to kind of pursue whatever they're working towards? I just start something, you know, whether it's starting by actually planting something or show up to a thing, show up to a, a workshop or a community meeting, or, you know, if you're too scared to talk to a farmer, just I know sometimes it's scary, but farmers will share. We want to share our knowledge with people, you know, so cold call or send an email and ask for some advice. Um, but I think you just have to start somewhere and do the thing that feels really good and takes a little courage or courageousness, I guess, but um, just start it. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support our podcast by clicking the link in the description, by subscribing through your favorite podcast app, and by following us on your favorite social media platform. 